Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast on this early Saturday morning. Uh, I'm Daniel, here with Sean, and you can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcasts.com. Um, also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And if you would like to support us, you can find uh, ways to do that. We have a few different options. You can do that at our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the particular Baptist. This is a great way to um, show some extra support for the ministry and get some extra benefits, um, as well as helping us to provide uh, high quality content um, that we do uh, week after week. All right. So diving into our topic today, um, we're going to be discussing the Trinity and kind of giving an overview of, of that particular doctrine. And I'll turn over to Sean to kick us off. Yeah. So we really wanted to go into like the foundations of the doctrine of the Trinity, why it's so important. What are the, the hermeneutics that uh, that spawn us uh, to, uh, to believe that God is triune, that the Bible teaches that? Um, and why is it so important to the, uh, the Christian life? And um, I guess just to dive into that, um, it is foundational to the Christian life because God is foundational to the Christian life. And if this is how the scriptures teach us that God is, then we would expect that that would just be foundational. Um, and we do see it um, in how it plays out, for example, in our, in our salvation. Salvation is a triune work. Uh, God elects, God the Father elects, uh, the Son uh, purchases and redeems, and the Spirit applies that work. So we see that all three members of the Trinity, of our triune God, play a role in that. Um, so uh, the Trinity is, is absolutely uh, foundational um, for the Christian life. Yeah, it, it undergirds not only our existence, but salvation in particular with um, you know, you find this especially in the gospel itself with Christ being the great I am. That is a critical part of the gospel. And Jesus makes it very clear uh, in the gospel of John that unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Um, and we also see this principle laid out in first John. So John, the apostle John carries this theme of the deity of Christ being critical to salvation um, throughout his uh, his writings. But first John talks about this as well. Um, those actually who deny that Jesus is the Christ are considered antichrists. They're against um, who Christ is. So embracing um, God and the doctrine of God, especially as we find in Christ, is crucial for understanding um, uh, the gospel. So there is an aspect of the doctrine of God, at least, that is crucial to our understanding of salvation. Um, but we also see that uh, the, the Trinity is really the foundation of our worship, too. Uh, we can't worship who we don't know or what we don't know, right? We can't just worship some being that we see as molded on our own image. Um, we have to worship what is revealed in Scripture and how Scripture prescribes that. Um, and when we're talking about worship, God is the one we are to worship. We're not to worship anything else or we're committing idolatry. We uh, you could see this already if you've been following us in our Ten Commandments series, talking about the first table of the law, the first four commandments dealing with the worship of God that comes first, and anything else is considered idolatry. Um, Francis Turretin, the uh, great French scholastic, uh, in his Institutes from the 24th question on uh, the doctrine of God, he says this. He says, second, it, and this is talking about the doctrine of the Trinity, <clears throat> contains the primary object of faith and worship, the confession of which our baptism necessarily includes, Matthew 28, 19. For it is not sufficient to know that God is as to existence or what he is as to his attributes, but we must know also who he is as to the persons as he presents himself to be known by us in his word. So because he's the primary object of our faith and worship, we need to know who this God is. Um, and he also... Um, talks later on about how he's the foundation of our worship. Um, but we see this principle also in our confession, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 2, paragraph 3. Um, it says, which, and this is towards the end of the paragraph, it says, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon him. So God is not only the foundation of all existence itself, but he's also the foundation of our confidence in him, of our of his promises, of 
uh, his works that he's going to carry out of our salvation. All of those things are grounded in God's very nature. Um, and all, and also as a foundation of our communion to God, which would include worship as well. So that's how foundational this doctrine is. Um, it's so foundational that everything that we believe rests upon who God is. Even it, we would even say that God precedes the scriptures. The scriptures are breathed from God, but they're based upon God's, um, you know, they proceed from God's nature. So God is the foundation of absolutely everything. So when we're approaching the doctrine of the Trinity, um, there are sort of hermeneutical foundations that we have to establish, right? Um, we have to establish that we're using the entire counsel of God, right? We're not just nitpicking verses. Um, proof texting is okay in certain places, but we have to be careful about that because proof texting can tend to back us into a corner where we don't want to be. Um, and this tends to be the favorite of certain groups who have their pet issues that they want to push that aren't necessarily consistently biblical. Um, so proof texting is not always the best way to go. It's best to look at all of scripture and take a holistic approach to our hermeneutic. And we want well, to do that when we're talking about the Trinity. Yeah. I was just going to jump in and interject. Yeah. If your proof texting literally comes from all over the Bible, that's a very good sign that um, you're not taking things out of context. Yes. For example, as we go through this, our uh, our uh, proof text will be all over the Bible, including the Old Testament, which is yes. not necessarily uh, something that's thought about a lot in modern evangelicalism. Is the Trinity, um, well, maybe it is thought about, but denied uh, that the Trinity right. is taught in the uh, in the Old Testament. So, uh, yeah, if you're if you're able to bring to the table um, lots of verses from different contexts, that's obviously you're on much safer ground than. Well, I got my one proof text here. Not to say that if uh, all you need is one text to prove a point, you don't need a multiplicity of texts, assuming that it's uh, that it's correct. But um, being able to prove a doctrine from all over the Bible is, is you're on good, solid ground there. Yeah. Yeah. Is that it shows it's it's a consistent doctrine. It's not something I'm, I'm pulling out of context. And, you know, to your point about the Trinity being found in the Old Testament, um, I think a lot of the foundation of our understanding of the Trinity is found from the old Testament. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. as we'll see um, the new Testament really is that um, anti-type of the old and it's revealing more of what is in the old, mm -hmm. but it's foundation is the old. Yes. Um, and absolutely. so I think that's, we're going to pull, I think a lot of our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity today from the old Testament, but it's something that we find from that holistic approach in scripture. Um, so I want to read a, a Part of a paragraph from our confession, London, Second London Baptist Confession, paragraph one, or chapter one, paragraph six. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or by traditions of men. So what's being said here is that not only what is expressly set down, but those things that flow necessarily from the express text things that aren't necessarily said explicitly and we do this all the time um you know we we use the term incarnation trinity um the deity of christ things like that that those phrases and terms may not necessarily be found in the text of scripture but the principles are because they're drawn from the express text of scripture and we would say that those at least the concepts um, that are derived our scripture themselves, because that's what the express texts are teaching. Um, now, the flip side of that is you had certain groups, um, especially the Socinian groups in uh, the 17th century, who were introducing a hermeneutic, one that moved away from analogical language as it relates to God and went to a more univocal understanding. You know, my understanding of person has to be the exact same way ad intra in God, or it's a nonsense. And they said that uh, we have to only use the Bible and we and reason. We can't be using creeds and confessions and tradition, essentially, even though the Socinians kind of had their own catechism, the Rakovian catechism. Um, so there's a little bit of irony in there. Um, but we do see this movement away from good and necessary consequence and towards, you know, what does scripture expressly say and the use of reason 
without using tradition that may be derived from the scriptures. Um, and we see what happened with that. There are heretical views of the Trinity that came on the scene. Um, so we don't want to fall into that kind of camp. We want to fall into the camp that sees scripture in a twofold sense. We take the explicit and we have what is necessarily contained or what is good and necessary consequences. The Westminster Confession lays out. And uh, to add to that, um, I think it's very clear that uh, we are hold ac held accountable for not drawing out logical conclusions from mm. uh, the text of Scripture. Um, I have up here, um, this is from Matthew 22. This is where um, the Sadducees are disputing, from, uh, disputing with Jesus about um, whether or not there's a resurrection from the dead. And uh, starting at verse 29 here. Uh, Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry, nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So this quotation from Exodus uh, 3, about uh, God's statement there, doesn't even have the word resurrection in it. And yet Jesus is rebuking the Sadducees for not having realized the fact that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not was the God, implies that they still exist, undermining the whole Sadducee concept of once you're dead, you're dead. There's no there's no afterlife. Um, so here, Jesus, he's using some pretty harsh language too, um, saying like, you do err, you know, um, he's saying, haven't you read what was spoken unto you by God? Like, of course, the Sadducees had read Exodus. That's, that's obviously they had, but he's, he's giving them a little bit of a verbal slap in the face there um, because they hadn't uh, understood what logically flowed from that particular scripture. Um, and we don't want to be in the same camp, right? Um, and you, you run into uh, many uh, people that like, well, I need an explicit verse. And then if you start trying to like, well, this verse implies this and this verse, like, no, 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 no. It has to say it explicitly. You see this with Unitarians. You see this with Muslims. You see this all over the place. Um, I, I would just say to somebody who argues like that, Jesus will rebuke you. Like Jesus, Jesus condemns that sort of thinking about the scriptures. Uh, we want to uh, interpret the scriptures in the exact same way Jesus did. So if we have a doctrine that says, um, if it's explicitly laid down or if it's necessarily contained in there, we want to, we want to, um, we want to use that. Um, so when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, yes, there are certain things, um, that, um, are only, there are uh, certain aspects of the doctrine of the Trinity that come out by implication. There's no specific text that says it, but if it is truly implied by the scriptures, we have to believe it. Um, and it's not right to ignore it. Like, Oh, well, it doesn't ex say it explicitly. So I can just ignore this. Yeah. You can even find that principle in John three with Nicodemus, you know, mm -hmm. Jesus rebukes Nicodemus for, you know, he's talking about the, the spirits movement and the spirits uh, salvific work. And he's saying, you know, how can these things be? And Jesus is saying, you know, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. In other words, you should have been able to pull this out from the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, sure. What he's saying is not explicitly set down that the, the spirit is going to be moving like the wind. But, you know, there's passages about the spirit being poured out on all flesh, the spirit being poured out on the nations, etc. So he should have been able to pick up on those implications from those expressed texts. And Jesus holds a teacher of Israel accountable for that. Yep. All right. So now, you know, the, the hermeneutical framework is, is important because that's going to help us to understand what we're going to be talking about today. There might be some terms uh, for some of you that might not be familiar. Um, some concepts might be familiar. Um, but if you don't find them in the text, you'll know why, because now we're, because we see these things as necessarily contained in the scripture. So you understand the framework that we're coming from when we're approaching the text. So now we're going to, we're going to go through some aspects of the Trinity, doctrine of God, the Trinity at a very high level. This isn't meant to be an exhaustive discussion. 
Um, but I hope that this could this episode could be like a reference point. Hey, I want to you know, I wanted a refresher on this particular topic on the Trinity. You know, this episode hopefully could be a resource. You could go back and get a quick overview on some of those um, topics. So diving right in, the foundation of the Trinity, number one, is that there's one God. We believe uh, that there is one God. We're monotheists. We don't believe in three gods, as the Muslims accuse us of when we talk about the Trinity. We are monotheists. We believe there's one God. We can see this. Again, we're going to start in the Old Testament. Isaiah 44, 9, all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witness is neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. So... Isaiah is mocking those who worship anything other than God. Um, so there is a sense of irony and sarcasm that's here that he gives in Isaiah 44. And it'll go on to mock whoever makes idols. You know, you're making wood. Or you're burning the same thing that your idol is made of. Are you guys idiots? You know, it, so there's there's mockery here of those who worship anything other than God. Isaiah 45, 5 through 7. I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So we have a clear teaching here that God is saying that um, there is no other God. Not only is it foolish to worship another God, but there literally is no other God. It's just me. Um, so that is really the foundation of um, everything that we believe as it relates to the Trinity. Yeah, um, it's very it's very important to have that foundation. Whatever direction we, we end up uh, going with, we have to remember at the end of the day, there is one God. So if our our um, doctrine of the Trinity ends up looking like there are three gods, and we've we've gone astray in that regard. And it's also it's very interesting. You were quoting um, Old Testament passages, right? The New Testament also affirms that there's one God. In fact, it never it never overturns that, um, which goes to show you that um, the uh, the authors of the New Testament didn't think they were doing something radical in proclaiming that Jesus Christ was also God. You know, um, they uh, because you would expect if they were doing something radical, there would be a huge polemic. Well, you know, the Jews say that there's only one God, but really there's three or, oh, the Jews say that there's one person of God, but we think there's three persons. No, it's it's um, it's dealt with more implicitly, which is what we would expect if the Old Testament does, in fact, teach that there are three persons of God. Yeah, Jesus doesn't actually. Yeah, you're right. Jesus doesn't have to correct any false notions in terms of monotheism in fact it was the jews who wanted to stone jesus because he claimed he was god for that very reason <laughs> so oh you know i'm gonna i'm before the high priest and i'm gonna quote daniel chapter seven whoa okay you know uh, no he's blaspheming look we don't need any more charges they they had a strong sense of monotheism and i think the jews have always had that to their credit um they just refused to accept uh, Jesus as that Yahweh that they were supposed to be worshiping. So uh, and I don't we're not going to get necessarily get into the history. It's going to be more um, biblically based. But there uh, at the time of Jesus, there were Jews that were at least Binitarian, um, recognizing that uh, God was multipersonal. So there is that background, even historically. Um, this isn't just coming out of, you know, nothing. Uh, but we're not really going to dive into that here. Maybe on a different podcast episode, that would be interesting. But uh, yeah, so the the claim that, you know, oh, well, the Jews were just absolute monotheists, no multipersonal God. And then you Christians, like, clearly there's something different here. We would argue, no, there's uh, even historically you can see that. But um, that's uh, that's that's for another discussion. Sean going into his historical theology trail over there. <laughs> I find that I find that whole thing really interesting. No, it sounds really interesting. Yeah. And it would kind of it almost it would condemn the Jews more because they had the foundation there and yet mm -hmm. they refused to accept Christ as God, even though he just I am, I am, I am, and they just completely threw it out, even though it sounds like they had a fundamental understanding of that concept of persons and God already. Mm -hmm. Just not fleshed out as we would no, understand yeah. it, but yeah, the, the seeds of it were there. All right. 
Uh, next principle. So we've we've laid the foundation that there's one God, and with that we have you know uh, Deuteronomy six: the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You know this this has to do with the unity of God, uh, the singularness of God, um, and so we do not believe that God is divisible. He's broken up into parts, right? So the next concept would be God's simplicity. This means that God is not composed of anything that is not God. All that is in God is God. Everything that is in God is attributes, uh, the persons, etc. That is all the essence of God. There is no real material distinction between those things, um, because then we would have a God who is less than perfect. We would have a God who is uh, dependent upon something or a multiplicity of things outside of himself. And then now there's something that precedes God and we would have um, a problem with that. Uh, we we can, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say at that point, we would really have to ask the question if there are multiple eternal things, mm. um, are, are, would we have, would we be polytheists at that point? Really? Because what we're saying is there are multiple eternal things that when combined, become god essentially right if god is mm -hmm. composed of parts um so you could i don't know get it gets complicated maybe it isn't polytheism in in a strict sense but it is interesting because then you're left with a question well is this part of god should i worship it also separately from the rest of god because it is also eternal you know um like there's there's interesting questions at that, that oh uh, yeah it raises all sorts phrase. of questions um and then you really don't have a God who is eternal and timeless um, because that God is composed of something that really isn't, it, it's finite because it's that part still stops somewhere and it has to move on to another yeah. part that makes Yeah, that's God. true. That's true. So yeah, yeah it, it creates a God who's dependent and, and finite at the end of the day. Um, you know, our confession deals with this directly. Um, and I'm going to confessions. You know, these confessions are good summaries of our of what we believe the biblical truth. Chapter two, paragraph one in the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, the Lord our God is but one living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself. So this means that he's not dependent upon anything to be. He just he's of himself. Infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. Okay? Without body, parts, or passions. So our confession is explicit that God is not composed of parts. And he's not a body. He's a most pure spirit. So when you say that he's a most pure spirit and he doesn't have a body, that pretty much takes care of the problem right there. But at the same time, it goes on to say that he does not have parts. He's not composed of anything that is not himself. And, hey, Richard, I see you're, you're here. We would say that the attributes are in him virtually and distinguish in the way uh in the way in say yeah they're distinguishing him virtually yes they're by how we perceive it um we, we would say that the attributes are just really one in god in order to preserve uh, his simplicity yep yeah you have the the metaphor of the the light hitting the prism right yep the light mm -hmm. is just one light but when it hits the prism it reflects into the, all the different colors that were in it in some sense, right? Even though it was, it was one light. Um, and that, that's a, a metaphor for God and creation. Creation reveals the attributes as if they were distinct and we can interpret them in some regards as if they're distinct, but really they are one in God. Yes. And we kind of have to just because of our creaturely limitations. Yeah. We can't, yeah. our minds can't conceive fully the idea of a, true simple being that because we're composite beings everything we think and see is composite um so yeah in creation it's distinguished from our perception but in reality ad intra in the trinity it is one in god yep yep important distinctions we have to make or we can get into all kinds of uh, problems really fast um some scriptural evidence for god's simplicity romans eleven thirty six 36 is probably uh, the biggest one for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. So Paul is saying that God is the source of everything. All things come from him. Uh, the, the efficient cause. And then the final cause is God himself, right? So if all things are coming from God, that implies necessarily that there cannot be anything that precedes God or anyone that precedes God, since all things are coming from him. He is a source of all things. 
So by implication, God cannot be dependent upon anything outside of himself, and therefore he is not composed of parts, which would necessarily make him dependent. Um, Exodus 3.14, uh, this is where we see God introducing his covenant name to Moses. Uh, this is the I am statement. He is the self-existent one. He depends on no one. He just is. He is the I am that I am. Now there will be, you know, you'll see open theists try to use the concept I am that I will be um, or something like that. And uh, I don't think the text allows for that. The text is, is saying that he is uh, what he is. Well, from my understanding, because Hebrew doesn't really have a present tense, so um, you have multiple things that can function as a present tense. Um, so the, the form of the, the verb is actually what we would consider time doesn't um, necessarily. Uh, it, Hebrew verbs don't contain time. It's, uh, it's contextually driven. Um, yeah. So yeah. in this case, even though it's what's, what you could loosely map to as, as a future, um, it's um, we're, we're taking it as as a present contextually. And um, I think this is further shown by the fact that um, uh, all over the place you see I am in Greek, right? Where Greek has more of a, yes. a temporal temporal aspect to it. Um, so when Jesus, Jesus says you should yeah, have it too in John. Yeah, eight. exactly. Yep. Um, so if that's the interpretation, right, of that of that name, in a sense, if Jesus using I am. Uh, right if that's a reference back to exodus 3 that's biblical um proof that that's how we should actually take it not that i will be that i will be but i am that i am yes yeah you're right it is contextually driven and and then these other passages that scripture you know you, you go to like daniel chapter 4 where nebuchadnezzar is saying no one can stay your hand or say what have you done things like that and i think even in job you can find some of this language but just this language again and again of God is independent of his creation. He's not dependent upon anything outside of himself. Um, and so we have to interpret passages like this as God not becoming something, as that would ne necessitate dependence, but God just existing as he is pure, uh, as uh, pure act, and he is not dependent upon anything. But this, again, this is the the hermeneutical framework we're working from, we're taking all of scripture, the revelation that we're given and pulling those necessary conclusions out of it, um, which is uh, what we have to continuously do. Um, and we, we see this doctrine throughout, you know, the, the reformation or at least the, the high reformation, you see William Ames talking about it. You see it in our confessions as we've been, you see the Westminster um, if you look at the Belgic Confession, which came long before our confessions came along, um, Savoy Declaration, you'll see this concept again and again, God's simplicity. He's not a body. He does not have parts. Um, that is pretty universally confessed. And it's really the heretics that move away from that um, concept uh, later on. All right. Uh, next, God is immutable. Um, this is another classic christian doctrine and it's tied very closely to simplicity um but it, it basically says god cannot change right malachi 3 6 for i the lord do not change therefore you O children of jacob are not consumed and this is the i am statement being applied here uh, if you look in your bible translation you'll see i am the lord in all caps that's the tetragrammaton i am so god is grounding this principle of immutability in his very nature Okay, it's not just he's one day I just don't feel like doing wiping you out and tomorrow I'm going to wipe you out. No, this is grounded in who I am. I am the Lord and I do not change. I am that I am and I stay that way. So it's it's not in his nature to change uh, whatsoever. Um, if God could change, we would have problems with um, God's promises. We could not have confidence in his covenant that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. Um, but if he is completely immutable, not able to change by virtue of his very nature, uh, then he is going to keep his promises. He's going to do what he says. Um, let's see here. Psalm 102, 25 to 27. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. So the distinction between the creator and the creature is uh, definitely being applied here. 
you see um, that the creator is the one who does not change. However, it says that God is the one who changes his creation. He changes them like a garment. So there is a distinction between the creator and the creature. And in terms of what they do in that in their respective modes of existence is attributed here too. creatures change. God does not. God's years don't end. Creatures years end. That contrast is made very clearly here in the Psalms. God is immutable. Creatures are not. And that really is the distinguishing factor, or at least one of the main ones, between um, God as deity and man in, in creatures, is change. Yeah, you don't want to um, over overturn the creator-creature divide, right? Because then you start right. making man look more like God, or God look more like man. Um, and man already has his own pride issues and, and right. willingness to... <laughs> you'll be like god knowing good and evil right? yeah exactly exactly <laughs> we're so um we should have no problem as christians saying no god is holy other um we don't we don't um we're not we don't want to make him like us we don't need to make him like us and in fact it's good that he is not like us because those are attributes that are good yeah <laughs> yeah given creatures are dependent that would that would be very problematic yep yeah. Um, let's see. Richard said it cannot mean that not only is God singular, but it must logically follow that he is simple in order to have a real exclusion from the existence of other gods. Yep. yep. If you there's no other God like our God, obviously, in reality, but even conceptually, you don't find in pagan religions a God who is truly distinguished from its creation. The gods are always they're just really supermen. They're not or, or super creatures. They're not really distinct from other from their creation they're bound to their creation men can trick them men can connive and and uh and do they can basically do what man can do just at a greater level however our god is so distinct from his creation that he cannot in any way be compared to his creation nor can he um can he be mixed with his creation um, or we start making god like us and if you're not careful you have an idol on your hands yeah, great point. Yeah, it's it's been a while since I studied Greek mythology, but my recollection is that for the Greeks and for a lot of um, ancient uh, mythologies, um, like you have the first gods basically being part of the universe, like uh, one like cut up cut up some god, and that became the heaven and the earth or something. Um, so they're they're all composed of something that's pre-existing, right? Right. <laughs> Which means that ultimately they're they're lesser deities, right? The thing that's pre-existing would be the, the true deity. Um, so, uh, and if we were to apply that in the Christian framework, like okay, maybe it doesn't pre-exist temporally, but it does pre-exist logically. If God is composed of parts, his parts pre-exist logically. So why are they? Why is God the true God and not the parts? You know, it becomes becomes confusing yeah it gets messy really fast and i mean it when you see the conniving that can be done against these gods it why anyone would worship them is beyond me mm -hmm. i mean obviously they're they're sinful hearts but you read like you read greek mythology and you just see how the, these gods are beholden to something that is even lesser than them you know they can be bound they can be you know you look at achilles he, he was wounded just by getting shot in the heel with an arrow you know it what kind of god is that that is yeah. going to be so weak that uh he's he can be shot with an arrow made by man something creaturely and be mortally wounded or or incapacitated yeah i think he's a he's a demigod but even then like the whole point was trying to get him so that he would be invincible by his mother or something i don't i don't remember so if she was a god then she failed right there <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, it's kind of laughable when you look at mm -hmm. uh, some of these mythologies and, and their gods. And even we even see this irony in Exodus, right, with the gods of Egypt, right? The plagues were yeah. to show the Egyptians that, and I guess the Israelites too, but that the gods of Egypt were nothing. They couldn't do anything. Look at them. Yeah. They're, they can't even uh, bring darkness. They can't uh, bring the firstborn back to life. They're pitiful. No, this is the true God. Look what he can do. Um, so it's, uh, it, it kind of, it, you know, it's kind of laughable to see when you look at these other mythologies mm -hmm. and compare them to how scripture presents our God. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it really is no comparison. It's, it's laughable at how creaturely they really are.
Mm-hmm. And um, even though all this logically flows from the, the biblical text, and I'm not trying to uh, undermine that in any way, if you need a little bit more of a, a foundation for this, just think about the fact that God is described as he is love, God is love, and also God is light, right? So he is those two things. Yet we see those things as distinct, but if he is both of those, we would expect them to be at least they, they're the same in God, right? He's both light and love. We see those as distinct, but in him, they're one and the same. Yep. Yeah, we, we have to keep those together. Uh, all the all these pantheons assume some sort of divine genus, which undermines the uniqueness as divinity. Yeah, they're all in the same category, essentially. Yeah. God does not have a genus or a species. He's completely unique. Yep. They are all part of the genus. Really, in some sort of creaturely sense, those gods are, are part of some sort of genus. Yep. So the category is puts them in a place that already sets them up for failure. Yep. All right. Um, one other principle I want to bring up, you know, I talked about God's immutability as it relates to his promises. Um, but when we're, you know, you look at Hebrews chapter six, right, where God is saying that there's no one hired to swear by as it relates to his promises. He, we can be so sure of God's promises because there's no one greater for God to swear by. So the we see the scriptures here saying very clearly that there is no one greater than God. He is a supreme being. And if there was, then God would have to swear by that supreme being in order to uh, enact these promises. But he doesn't. He's swearing by himself, his own unchanging, immutable nature. So we can have full confidence that his promises will be carried out without any um, without any change or mutation um, because he's grounded these things in himself. All right. Now we're going to look at the actual discussion of the Trinity briefly. So all of those things that we've talked about are all the foundations for the Trinity, right? Those are all the foundations for the discussion of the, the three persons in a divine essence. Um, because I would say that all the errors as it relates to the Trinity are a compromising of those three things. Any one of those three things. Simplicity, immutability, and the oneness of God, right? Um, or an overemphasis on any one of those things, right? You see with Arius, uh, one of the reasons, or probably the prime reason that he rejected the son's deity was because he saw it as creating multiple gods. And he believed that God is simple. There's only one God. And because of his uh, commitment to monotheism, his conclusions were false. Um, same with the Socinians. You look at a Socinian like John Biddle in England, um, who rejected the Trinity because he saw persons in the Trinity in a strictly human sense and thought that led to tritheism. Um, so good commitments to God's unity, simplicity, his oneness, but false conclusions because of the proper misunderstanding of persons and things of the matter um, and overemphasizing in this case the oneness and simplicity of God. So you can have either a compromise of those things or you can have an overemphasis on those things to the extent where you exclude any other consistent language as it relates to the, the persons of the Godhead. Um, and that seems to be the pattern when you look at heresies throughout um, the church. Same with Christology, like Eutychianism, an overemphasis on Christ's divine nature, you know, it, leaving out that he had a real human nature. Um, and... In Nestorianism, where you're talking about the two persons of Christ because of a misunderstanding of the unity of the natures in the person. You know, it, it's all uh, maybe subtle misunderstandings, but that led to massive um, conclusions. Um, so it's it's important to establish these other things correctly before talking about uh, the persons of the Trinity. Um, so, you know, we have the classic Trinitarian formula. We have God is, is one being who exists as three persons. And uh, it's important to phrase it in that way, that he exists as three persons, um, because we don't want to use language that dis really distinguishes the persons from the essence, right? Uh, why? Because of divine simplicity. If we say that the persons have a... Uh, essence that is really and truly distinct from the persons, then we have um, a God who's composed of persons 
and essence. Now you have compromise, divine simplicity. Um, so we say that God exists as three persons. And so I think this is a much better way um, to put it. So what this means is that the persons are uh, persons in a sense that we could understand persons to be. We have to be very careful not to impose univocal language that persons, as I understand it, must, in a human sense, must exactly be how it is ad intra in the Godhead. We'd be very careful about that. Um, but the scriptures do provide us with the Father, Son, and Spirit in a personal way. They speak. They think. They're, um, they're intelligent. Um, you know, they're intelligent of, of themselves. You know, they're, they're speaking to people. They're interacting with people. We would all understand those things to be personal traits, right? But we still, we stop and we say, okay, there is a sense where um, we have to speak of the divine persons in a way that is not like human persons. Um, we can say that they are truly persons, but there are things about uh, the divine persons that are not at all in parallel with human persons. And I would say, um, at the end of the day, there is really no parallel. We, we're speaking analogically. We're not speaking univocally. But we can truly say that they are persons um, because of the traits that the scriptures give us. So we, we have to kind of almost double speak in a sense. Um, we, so we don't say too much, but we don't say too little. So we can really speak of God truly, but we're not speaking of God exhaustively. Um, so we have to be really, really careful with that. Um, and when we say that the persons are intelligent, we're not saying that they each have their own mind or they each have their own will. We don't believe in, you know, these self-conscious, um, individual self-conscious understandings as we've seen. Uh, we did an episode on that with James, uh, on James White's understanding of the Trinity, um, and we, we don't hold to that. Um, they're conscious by virtue of um, their own will and their, uh, you know, the singular will of God that is... Um, shared among them. We do not believe that they are self-conscious in and of themselves. Okay. We have to be very, very careful about that. Yeah. You do, you do sometimes get the question, well, if they're not self, if they're not distinctly conscious in some way, how can you, um, how can, does the father know he's the father as opposed to the son, right? If they're sharing the same divine essence, which includes the, the divine knowledge, right? Like how can they, how can the father know he's the father in uh, regards to the son? Um, and we do have to uh, say at some sense, they are able to recognize each other. Um, but for me, the way I, I think about it is, well, the, the divine essence is, is capable of, of doing that without being a separate instance of the divine essence, right? The divine essence is capable of being shared by multiple persons and yet not being different. Um, now, if you ask me, like, how exactly does that work when you get down to it? I, I'll be honest, I, I don't know. Um, but I know what the scriptures say. And I know I have to, to keep those two realities there. And I don't think it's logically impossible, even if I can't fathom um, how exactly it works in God himself. Yeah, and that seemed, if I remember correctly, from our discussion on, on James White's view of the self-consciousness, that seemed to be a touch a touch point for him was how can the father know the son's uh, existence without being self-conscious? Um, so whatever we have to say about the divine essence, we cannot say that they're self-conscious really as we are. You know, I'm conscious to, and I know Sean exists and he's here um, because of my own separate consciousness distinct from yours. Um, it cannot mean that um, because the problem is that we run into three minds. We ha now have three wills and now you have three gods at that point. Um, and, and really, the, the only distinction between the, the three is by the relations of origin, um, mm -hmm. as we'll we'll see in a second. Um, but yeah, that language gets very, very difficult if you're not careful. And that's why we, we strive as best we can to be as clear and concise as possible with our language about God. It's not going to be perfect. Obviously, there's going to be times where we're probably going to slip up. We might say something we didn't mean, and it and it has implications and you have to go back and say, well, sorry, guys, that wasn't correct. We we refine that language better here. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we're all growing in that area. Um, you know, and that's something, you know, where we don't write people out of the kingdom just because they misspeak about God. 
Um, you know, we start to get really concerned when people are continuously making mistakes in light of correction. That's where uh, things start to take a different turn. But, um, you know, as we're refining our language, uh, it's easy to slip up, um, but it's a continuous process. We're reading, we're growing, we're studying the scriptures and the spirit is guiding us. We uh, become more refined in our language. And that's always something we have to we have to strive towards. Um, but when we're talking about the distinction of the persons or the modes of being, and this is kind of, if you read John Owen uh, on the Trinity, this is kind of the language that he uses, this mode of existence language. And it's very similar to um, Thomas Aquinas's understanding of the persons. Um, and you can even find this uh, type of language in, um, uh, in some writings against Socinianism uh, in the 17th century seeing the divine essence as really just a mode of existence is what the person is. It's not distinguished from the essence. It's just the essence existing in a special way. That's kind of the language that Owen used. But we see this distinction with regards to the relations of origin. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, because the moment you start using words like mode, people get suspicious, like, oh, are you guys yeah. modalists? Um <laughs> No. And we would like to, and I was going to go into it later, so I'll wait, but I'll just say right here, um, we believe in the distinction of the persons from eternity past, right? Yes. Which no no modalist can can say, right? No. Um, <laughs> like, this isn't some sort of like, well, in time, you know, God reveals himself as Father, Son, and, and Spirit, but he's really one person. No, there's there are three persons that are distinct from uh, eternity past. Yes. No, that's very important. We're, they're coexistent, co-eternal persons. They're not persons that are, uh, you know, they, they come on the scene at different points in history. The father is mm -hmm. here and then the son shows up and then this, now it's just the spirit. No, that, that's heretical and we reject that. Um, but that's a good clarification to make, especially if, if you're not familiar with the, the historical use of mode in this sense. Um, it could come across that way because of the you know, like Unitarians or the Oneness Pentecostals, um, like T.D. Jakes, mm -hmm. uh, who does teach this modalistic kind of understanding of the Trinity. Um, but yeah, we see the distinction with their relations of origin. So we have the father is of none, right? He, the father is the father because he is the father of the son, right? There's that relation. And the son is a son because he is begotten eternally of the father. Um, and so we say that properly he is uh, the son and then the spirit is spirating from the father and the son and then that relation uh, distinguishes the spirit from the father and the son and this distinction of relation is important because um, it, the relational language allows us to speak of the divine essence in a way that provides a real distinction without division so we can maintain god's simplicity um, while still confessing a real distinction between the persons. And we tend to identify distinction and division together, unfortunately, in our minds. Um, we, we think there's a distinction. We immediately think that there is a division, right? I'm distinct from Sean, and there is a real division. My essence is not Sean's essence. My person is not Sean's person. We're distinct physically, personally. Um, there is an ontological division there between us. Um, we're not the same person or the same um, body. So we tend to think in that way. Um, but when we're talking about division and distinction in the Godhead, uh, one does not necessarily mean the other. They can be separate yet consistent concepts um, at the same time. So we speak in terms of relation. And this is how the scriptures uh, present um, the, the persons of the Trinity. Um, a good summary of this, if you look in the Westminster Longer Catechism, which is part of the Westminster Standards, where um, our tradition somewhat is uh, flows from, and we would stand in line with these principles here. Uh, question nine, how many persons are there in the Godhead? There be three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one true eternal God, the, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. You can see some of the language here is explicitly against Arianism. They're equal in power and glory. There's no inequalities. There's no hierarchy of power. There is just co-equal, co-eternal persons. And then question 10, what are the personal properties of the three persons in the Godhead? 
Answer, it is proper to the Father to beget the Son, and to the Son to be begotten of the Father, and to the Holy Ghost to proceed from the Father and the Son from all eternity. That's the only way we distinguish them. We don't distinguish them by um, will. We don't distinguish them by um, their material actions necessarily. We're distinguishing them by their relations, their ad intra works, right? We have to be really careful about that or we can get into the problems really quickly because as soon as we move out of the relational distinction, now you're divi really dividing uh, the Godhead um, because a relation does not necessarily mean uh, division. So it's very important that we, we keep those distinctions uh, in mind. And we're not claiming to, again, we're not claiming to know God exhaustively. We're claiming that we can know God truly and we can know God uh in a way that allows us to worship him we can claim to know god in a way that uh, allows us to be saved but we do not know god exhaustively um and and that is an important distinction to make we're not claiming to know god exhaustively and even the language that we're using of god here is limited it's analogical it's not speaking in a univocal way it's it's analogical in some way just because our our language can't comprehend an infinite eternal being because we're coming from a dimension that is just not at that level. We, we can't, we can't comprehend that in our minds, but we, these concepts and these truths can capture that truth in a way that we can somewhat understand and grasp. Um, but there's no way we're going to be able to, to get into those depths, but we also don't cop out and just say it's a mystery and we're not going to deal with all the, the tensions and the issues that come up with this. We try to present concepts that are consistent at their at their base and then we don't go anymore where um we shouldn't be traveling down those roads we go as far as scripture gives us and then we we should stop um it, it's it can get dangerous to speculate too much um but we don't follow the biblicist model and just say well you know the scriptures only say this explicitly and we shouldn't speculate beyond that no we we go where good and necessary consequence takes us and uh, if and we try not to go beyond that uh, too much or we can we can get into uh, dark waters really quick. Anything you want to add, Sean? Yeah, I've got right. a couple uh, more than a couple verses here. <laughs> uh, so uh, just uh, going back to this discussion about um, the uh, the um, the persons uh, existing um distinctly in eternity past right that these are not just ways of revealing but these these uh distinction between the persons really do exist um we have john 1 and um uh, 118 john 1 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and then two verse two the same was in the beginning with god so we have it described as the word is god and the word is also with god um, and then verse 18, uh, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten son, which is in the bosom of the father, he hath declared him. We're seeing that at the same time, there's God, the son is God, but also distinct um, that he can be with the father. And this is happening um, be, uh, in the beginning, right? In the beginning. So this is an, uh, this is a pre-eternal um, existence that there's this distinction. Um Let's see. And at this point, I think I actually wanted to go into a uh, proof for uh, the deity of the Holy Spirit. Um, oftentimes, we as Christians focus um, a lot on proving, proving the deity of Christ. And that's important, obviously. But um, it's to the neglect sometimes of proving the deity of the Holy Spirit. I and think that was a controversy in the early church, too. Mm -hmm. um, I can't remember which church father specifically dealt with it, but the the deity of the Holy Spirit was something that actually, uh, I think, came up in the early church. And I think during the Sicinian um, mm -hmm. debate stuff, too. So it's it is very important. It's not something that hasn't been dealt with before or hasn't been questioned. Mm -hmm. I think um, a lot of the uh, the neglect of it stems from the idea. And in some regards, it's a true idea. Right. If you if you can prove the deity of the son and the deity of the father, like if you're already willing to accept Binitarianism, Trinitarianism is not, is not a, a leap at all. Right. Um, but we do still want to um, ground our belief in the deity of the Holy spirit in the scriptures. 
And I will say that um, this uh, this uh, doctrine will test you in regards to are you willing to let uh, what's implied in the scriptures speak to you? Because a lot of this is implied. Um, for example, um, one of the ways that we know that the uh, the Holy Spirit is God is the fact that he, um, he's used interchangeably with God in certain contexts. First uh, Corinthians, um, this is verse uh, or chapter three, verse sixteen and seventeen. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So here it doesn't explicitly say that the Spirit of God is a God, although you could even probably get that from the name. But it's like, well, you're God's temple. Don't you know that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? Like, okay, well. If temples are where gods dwell and the Holy Spirit is dwelling in me as the temple and it's God's temple, we would therefore conclude that the Holy Spirit is God. Um, and this is even uh, it's implicit or explicit a little bit more in verse uh, in chapter six, verse 19. Um, what know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God and ye are not your own. So now not only is it the temple of God, it's the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we had that, that interchange there. This all implies that uh, the spirit of God is God. Um, we also have the fact that the spirit does things that only God does. Uh, Job 33, 4, the spirit of God hath made me and the breath of Almighty, the almighty hath given me life. So the spirit does the things that God does. God creates, the spirit creates. So we therefore uh, naturally conclude that the Holy Spirit is God. Um, and then uh, I want to um, just briefly go through um, the uh, some of the Old Testament passages that would lead us in a Trinitarian direction, right? That uh, we would understand that uh, all three are, uh, are God. Um, so the first thing I want to bring out is the, the distinction between the angel of the Lord and um, God. So the angel, you'll see the angel of the Lord often in the Old Testament. And it's very clear by the way it's, it's spoken of that uh, the angel of the Lord is God, which is interesting because it's also distinguished from God that there's, you've got the, the, it is, he is Jehovah, but also distinguished from other people or persons um, that are also called Jehovah. Um, just to prove that the angel is God, this is Genesis 16, verse, starting at verse 7. And this is the angel of the Lord appearing to Hagar. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain that uh, fountain in the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, whence camest thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, and submit, submit thyself under her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. And he will be a wild man, his hand will be against every man, and every man's against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And she called the name of the Lord that spoke unto her, the, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? So um, here she's saying that, oh, I, I'm calling this, um, I'm calling his name, uh, uh, Jehovah, she called the name, sorry, um, she calls him the God that sees me, right? Um, and uh, I've heard people try to say like, oh, well, she's just mistaken, right? But uh, the narrator says um, in verse 13, and she called the name of the Lord, that's capital L-O-R-D, so that would um, be underneath that would be the divine name Jehovah. She called the name of Jehovah that spoke unto her, thou God seest me. Um, so she's, uh, the narrator is letting us know she called Jehovah, um, thou God seest me, but she saw the angel. So the angel is in some, uh, is to be understood as Jehovah. Um, you also have the, um, uh, in Exodus, right? The, the story of the burning bush. Everybody knows that it's God in the burning bush, right? Well, what does the text actually say? It says, um, starting at verse two, uh, 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of, the, of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. So it's the angel of the Lord in the bush, but also says God turned and God spoke to him out of the bush. Uh, so um, we, we see that the angel is God. Uh, and um, just to wrap this all up and bring it together, sometimes we see all three persons in the same context, right? showing that the, the Old Testament is Trinitarianly aware. So, for example, Isaiah 63, 7, I will mention the, uh, starting at verse 7, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord, all according to that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindness. For he said, surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and his in his pity, he redeemed them, and he bare them, and carried them all the days of old. But they rebel, rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he was turned to be their enemy, and he fought against them. So here we have all three persons in the same context. And it's interesting, uh, it's all in the context of salvation, right? Going back to the beginning of the episode, Salvation is a triune work, right? And this is what we would expect. Uh, God the Father purposed to save the Israelites. The um, the uh, um, the Son, the angel of the Lord, led them out of Egypt, and yet they rebelled um, because this was not something that was effectual, not applied to them by the Holy Spirit. So they rebelled against His Holy Spirit, um, and they were, and many of them perished in the wilderness. But we see all three persons in the same context. So. While the Old Testament might not be as explicit in its Trinitarian thought, we do see the elements of Trinitarianism in there. Yeah, that's interesting about um, the the passage in Corinthians about the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. I I don't think I'd ever thought of it in that way before. Um, but you're right. There's like this, well, it's the temple of God. And if the Spirit's dwelling in the temple, then he must be God. That's the only logical conclusion you can come yeah. to. Yeah. And if you're a biblicist, that doesn't work because it that's not explicitly said in the text. <laughs> yeah, I, you have yeah. to you have to infer that And pretty much any. I think any of the passages that talk about the deity of the Holy Spirit, you have to infer even the passage like the scripture. Um, it's also in Corinthians. I can't I, I can't remember which book, but the spirit knows the minds and the, knows mm -hmm. the thoughts of God, searches mm -hmm. the depths of God. Well, the implication of that is that he's omni he's omniscient. If he's omniscient, he must be God because only God yeah. is omniscient. Yeah. Um, and if even if you take the passage in Acts, you know, you've not lied to men, but to God. Um, I don't think that's a slam dunk in and of itself, because um, you could argue that, you know, the spirit is a representative of God. And if you're lying to the spirit, you're lying to God by proxy, not necessarily directly. Um, but I think you can you can infer it from that text, obviously, based on other places. But um, yeah. You don't find as explicit a testimony no. of the deity of the Holy Spirit as you would Christ or the Father. No, but if we understand that every single thing that can be gleaned from God's word, uh, that's true, right? Whether it's explicit or implicit is truth, right? If it yep. is implied, then we have to go with it. And we say that scripture, that has the yeah. same authority. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. I can't hide behind the fact that, oh, well, it didn't explicitly say that. No, if it's implied by God's word, we, we follow it. Um, we're, we're, yeah. we're being necessarily implied, then we yeah. have to go down that road or we're not doing justice to the text. Yep. Yeah, we're being disrespectful to God in uh, in saying like, oh, well, you know, it wasn't explicitly laid out. Therefore, I'm not going to I'm not going to listen to it. Right. Yep. It all goes back to our hermeneutical understanding. That yeah. is the ground for all of this, this entire discussion. We have yeah. to under we have to have a proper hermeneutical framework going into mm -hmm. this, or we're going to be in trouble. And uh, in sort of a way of closing, I'll just say that we've presented um, a lot here today, but a lot of it's still very basic. And I would encourage our listeners to uh, to go deeper um, if we do truly want to know our uh, Lord. You know how He is. We would want to uh, to go deeper in our knowledge. 
Um, I fear that, um, again, in, in modern Christianity, there's sort of like, well, I know the basics and the basics is good enough. And the basics are good enough for salvation. That's true. That's absolutely true. But that doesn't mean that you would want to just stay there, you know, like, oh, well, I'm good enough to be saved, you know, so I don't need to learn any more about God. Um, no, we should we should desire um, to want to know God more, not to the point that we are going out into unbiblical speculation that, you know, and, and trying to say, oh, well, God is this way. You know, uh, we do still want to stay tethered to the scriptures, but we do also want to learn more about God. Um, I'll, I'll just recommend, um, cause I just took a class, um, at seminary in regards to the Trinity. And I, I just read through uh, Bavinck's systematic theology. I felt that it was uh, very good in, in talking about the, uh, the doctrine of God, uh, didn't necessarily agree with his, um, his idea about doctrinal development, but that's, that's regardless to the, the or it's, um, not relevant to the fact of like he presented very well the the doctrine of god so that might be a good uh, starting point if uh, somebody's interested yeah bobbing's a good starting point um john gill has an entire work on the doctrine of the trinity i haven't read it at least in depth yet but i can imagine overall it's it's orthodox knowing it's john gill particular baptist um uh, john owen wrote some uh, on the trinity specifically um, although Owen is going to be much more dense than some other writers. Um, but if you want those it, really kind of a, a high Reformation uh, understanding of the Trinity, he would probably be the guy to go to. Um, and you can read William Ames, who was an early English reformer. Um, the Confessions, Westminster, Belgic, Savoy, Second London, they all talk about the Trinity um, and give some basic overviews of the doctrine. Um, so there's, there's, especially in our day and age, we have a ton of resources on the Trinity that we can go to, um, digital and in print that we can pull from. Um, so, and, and we can, you know, if you want any speci more specific resources, feel free to reach out to us. We can, uh, we can point you in directions. We can give you links and, and references, um, that you can go to, um, to, to help this understanding more. Um, as you dive into this, having a, a good historical theology is, is helpful, too, as you go through this understanding, uh, you know, what did the early church think about this, these issues? What did the reformers think about these issues? It's, it's good to read those things and to read widely and have a well-rounded understanding of of these particular issues. But um, anyways, I hope this gives kind of a, a basic overview um, of the Trinity and something that maybe you can reference for future or the future if you would like to, uh, you know, go back and, and talk about the doctrine of the Trinity some more or, or have a reference point to go to. Um, hopefully this can provide those basics. But we appreciate you joining us today. Um, I want to give a quick shout out to our uh, patron, uh, Stephen, who has been very faithful to us and uh, a very good um, supporter of our ministry. Again, if you would like to, to join Stephen as a supporter, you can head over to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the particular Baptist, and you can receive those extra benefits and, and continue uh, to support the ministry. But we thank you for joining us today and have a great uh, holiday weekend if you get Monday off and a great Lord's Day tomorrow. Thank you.